0: All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The DealMaker Show. So today we have someone that is going to be very exciting with a really diverse background, also has been around the block quite a few times. So without further ado, David Gurley, welcome to the show today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, so just doing a little bit of a, of a walk through memory lane here. You spent uh, some time uh, in your childhood living in Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon. So... I, I would assume that you also had to go through all the uh, civil war and, and craziness uh, that was happening there. So I guess, I guess, growing up in that environment, what what did you learn?
1: Well, first of all, you're right. Uh, I've uh, had a chance to experience um, lots of volatility, I guess. Um, and I grew up like locals, as my parents decided that um, it would be a good experience for me to go to local schools and not go to typical in diplomat schools uh, that other kids will go. So it gave me um, the perspective about others. It gave me the option to see home, uh, what was my culture, between a French father and an English mother. um, You know, I had quite an interesting mix of uh, Western culture. uh, While um, at, at school and with my friends on the street, I was seeing... A very different world, different values, different belief systems, and different priorities, and uh, and that gave me um, a perspective about life uh, that to this day I still cherish. And um, since I grew up in the streets there, I had the chance to first be street smart before being academic smart, and um, and and play. And, um, and strategize in, in winning those uh, uh, kind of your small day-to-day um, uh, battles and uh, and growing with that was an experience that, that taught me a lot about pragmatism, uh, about understanding others um, and about figuring out a way in which you you build peace uh, and you move forward with um, your consensus. So uh, so that's I guess the takeaways for me.
0: Got it. And and at what point were you? Because I I, I see that that you study your masters and, and and you did your computer science and and telecommunication. So, at what point did you started kind of like getting interested in in the computer environment?
1: I was eighteen years old. So when I was fourteen, my dad decided it was time for us to move back to Europe. Um, there were you know lots of bad things going on in the Middle East, and. Um, so when we arrived to uh, the South of France, to Cannes, uh, where I grew up for the rest of uh, my childhood, it was um, it was clear that uh, you know the street life I was living in wasn't uh, going to be the future. So I first uh, really focused on uh, external uh, outside activities. So I became a ski instructor, a having instructor, and I thought that was going to be my future. But then I realized uh, this passion of science and a passion of, um, of precision and, and rigor I was very strong. And then around uh, 18 years old, I, I, I started getting into computing and uh, there was Atari at that time, Commodore. Uh, so those are the dinosaurs of the computing era these days, but back then they were big things and i started building things on my own programming things and um, and that was it i fell in love with it and uh, and that love story still continues to this
0: day got it and and what about let's let's talk about here the um some of the experience right uh, being an engineer so your first job that was a digital equipment corporation so you were there for about a year and and you did a couple of jumps until you got into vocal tech uh, where you lasted for for 3 years but what did you learn, let's say, from from your stint at Digital Equipment Corporation, France Telecom and also Etsy?
1: So a DEC, or in, in short, DEC um and was the Microsoft of you know of those years, the most admired company, um, the company that invented um mini computers, uh, you know, from mainframe to mini computers to personal computers. And then and I, I worked um for DEC, actually for for two years one year as a junior engineer and, and and one year as a real engineer and i told you that um i became a computer science um engineer after graduating but honestly it is at digital that i have learned what coding is and um and what proper software design patterns are so i was sent to their school of six months, uh, during which I realized that I knew nothing. Uh, It wasn't because I knew how to program in C, or assembler, or how to build a computer, that I knew what computer science um, was, or is. And I I started learning uh, things by being a tester, and then uh, I was giving automation. Uh, Test develop, uh, and then from there I start going into fixing bugs um, that others did, and then from there I start building small code snippets, and then progressively I graduated to be a software engineer, and that that process took time, and uh, and to this day I carry that that knowledge with me, and and from there I jump into France Telecom um, because I also had a telecommunications degree, a master telecommunications degree. So, I was passionate about networking. I knew that the computers were meant to be connected with each other very early on. And then I wanted to I wanted to make it happen. So France Telecom uh, had a research center in south of France and uh, and I joined that. And then from there, um, I learned um, the rigor of um, what I will call the networking stack and uh, and how all the way from the physical layer to the to the software layer, things interconnect with each other, and and they end up talking to each other in a meaningful way so that like you and I today, uh, we can have this conversation. And then I saw um, a big change, and it was in 1995. And I realized that uh, everything was going to converge to internet protocol or IP in short. And uh, if you and I are today talking uh, via Skype, um, that's because back in the 1994, 1995 time, we were able to send uh, voice through packet networks like IP. And uh, and that became for me an aha moment. And, then, and from there, I knew that I was going to do whatever it takes not only to join that revolution, but to make it happen. And so that's how I joined VocalTech, which was the first uh, company uh, that went public back in 1995, I think, or 1996 um, as the internet telephony company.
0: Really cool, and and you actually went to Israel.
1: I did. Yes, back to Middle East. <laughs> that I was, mean,
0: that's, uh, but that's that quite was a big quite... jump. Quite a big jump, no, from uh, France, where that's that's basically what you knew as an employee, all the way to Israel. So I mean, that was definitely quite a jump.
1: It was um, not only for me. Because I took my family, I had two kids, uh, young, one and four year old at the time, and uh, and you know expatriation outside of uh, I said of France uh, to Middle East. It was during the Iraqi war. It was not an easy um, life for for my family, as a matter of fact, and um, and so I'm more grateful for for their sacrifice than mine. Um, But uh, I I wouldn't trade that experience for anything else. Um, A from a personal level. Uh, I had I didn't have the opportunity to live in Israel, so I saw I saw Middle East, you know, from uh, from the other side, and 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 going to Israel and and seeing it from from another perspective was extremely enriching from a from a personal point of view. Well, on top of that, I had to work. I had the chance to work with you know s- the smartest people that I had the chance to work with ever, and uh, and they were just so smart. I was thinking, I'm so so damn I, I know nothing. <laughs> so. Right. Um, in order to, to challenge myself to, to go up, I decided to, uh, to write a book. You know, maybe it's the time for me to, to put my knowledge to test and see whether I can write a book on voiceover IP. And um, so I started that, uh, that book as I was traveling back and forth between Israel and all the places around the world, um, and eventually ended up publishing that book and, um, and, and many others after that.
0: That's fantastic. So, how many books have you published so far? Five. Wow. That's uh, that's unbelievable. I mean, I've published one, and and it was quite a a challenging thing to do. I can't even imagine five, but uh, that that's fantastic. So, so I guess I I guess after this, you then go to Microsoft, and and I guess these are the um, kind of like the days as well where where you're getting to experience this this rocket ship as well of of how things work. You were doing programming and, and, and then a couple of other things. So, so out of this, let's say almost four years at Microsoft, what was the takeaway for you?
1: You know, the, the, first of all, the reason I joined Microsoft is quite interesting. We should, we should just spend a minute okay. to talk about that. Um, so I was at VocalTech, we were doing uh, voice over IP, internet, telephony. It was going well, but you know, you needed a computer, you need to go- download, or buy, no, actually buy the software at that time, there was not the internet that we know of today. And then you need to have a dial-up modem, and then you need to make a connection to the internet and eventually make a, make a phone call or, or, you know, voice to voice, uh, IP to IP. And, uh, and it was a very, very, very uh, friction heavy process. And I realized that in order for voice over IP to become real, Microsoft had to embrace it because you had to embed that stack in Windows. And if it was part of Windows, uh, then the revolution will start. And so uh, I was uh, closely working with Microsoft as I was um, in standardization committees and uh, and they made me an offer and I joined Microsoft. Um, and uh, the next day I resigned uh, because I felt that um, they weren't going the right direction. And so the VP who hired me um, said, David, don't go. Um, don't go to the team that hired you. Just be an individual contributor and tell me what, what needs to happen and what we need to do and, and just stay and, and, and we'll make it happen. And so um, I decided to stay. And, um, and then I, I started building basically the Microsoft real-time communication strategy. It took uh, me uh, just a few weeks to meet Bill Gates and uh, and we really connected with each other uh, at the first meeting. And then from there, I just started getting the resources I needed and and finally ended up being the general manager of uh, Microsoft real-time communication product set and did what I wanted to do, which was make um, the RTC stack part of Windows. and right. And that, and I, and I, I uh, worked um, on a very important um, telecommunications protocol called Session Initiation Protocol, called SIP. Uh, I was part of the, um, the the contributor to that standard at uh, Internet Engineering Task Force. And I, I changed the Microsoft stance uh, from a previous different protocol to, to SIP. And that completely settled the, the industry because once Microsoft adopted that new protocol, everybody knew that they had no choice but to stick to it and uh, and that actually created the, the the biggest I would say what was the biggest catalyst uh, to to have everyone focus on one communication protocol as opposed to many of that time and uh, and that basically became um, the enabler. Uh, for pretty much everything from your mobile phones to Cisco phones that people use to Skype that we use today, um, you know, to to standardize on this type of uh, protocol. So that was one of the things that I'm the most proud of at Microsoft
0: and and how was that that day david when you met uh, bill gates i mean you're saying it as a as a small thing but here we're talking about one of the um, biggest entrepreneurs probably in the in the in the history of of entrepreneurship in the past decades so how was that experience for you
1: you you want to know how i met bill the first time
0: yes let's hear it
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i was really really scared to meet him um obviously you know everything you said is true, and uh, and people knew he was merciless, and 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 they told me about how hard he is in those meetings. Now you cannot screw up, and I I was just so stressed, I had to go to restrooms. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so uh, I'm in the restrooms, and then there's a guy who comes next to me, and I don't look at the guy, but anyway, I just turn my head, and here comes Bill Gates. <laughs> wow. Oh. so i said to myself oh hi <laughs> <laughs> hide each other <laughs> which is something you should never do as you know <laughs> right um but it completely humanized build for me and i yes. knew that he was just me like you know um like even and that he was he was someone that also would go to the bathroom you know? <laughs> <Exactly>. someone <Somewhat> normal.
0: <laughs> that's great that's great yeah. so so what what was your biggest lesson let's say from um
1: from, from Bill Gates? Oh, there are so many um, attention to detail. Um, never stop asking why. Um, the, 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 the depth of curiosity and intellectual horsepower that Bill had is unmatched. And uh, we'll spend, he and I, hours together um, talking about technology and things that um, I thought I knew, but he will always come to the end of my knowledge very quickly. Um, and then he'll always encourage me to go deeper and deeper and deeper. And um, and I also learned, you know, um the other side, which is that you know, he'll he'll sometimes he'll get he'll get pretty angry in meetings. Um and I said to myself, okay, you know, I'm not sure this is me. You know, I don't wanna I don't wanna do that. And uh, and so it gave me really um going back to my experience in the Middle East, a number of perspectives. And, uh, and I've been able to uh, to build on that. And, uh, and that made me who I am today.
0: Got it, got it. So at what point did you say, hey, I'm going to Thomson
1: Reuters? Oh, that was a tough moment for me. Um, Thomson Reuters was one of my customers. Um, and, um, and their CEO came and said, you know, we, we need to change... Company culture. We need to revamp. I need fresh, fresh blood. Would you, would you join us? And I said no. I'm really doing well at at Microsoft. Um, And then um, that was like took a year. And then they came back and they said no, no. We really need you. It would be really, really great if you could come. I said I'm still not interested in living. But at the end, I also had reasons to go out uh, because Microsoft is an ivory tower. Everything is great at Microsoft, but it's only Microsoft way. And, and I like to understand things from different points of views. And so being a technology stack vendor versus being a service provider in a very um, important and mission-critical market, such as financial services that powers the world economy, felt really compelling to me. And they presented a very nice challenge uh, of revamping Thomson Reuters from ground up. And so with that uh, took the family uh, from Seattle to New York and, um, and voila, I was working for Thomson Reuters. Wow, and you
0: were there for quite a bit, for uh, six years. And, exactly. uh, and then after that, you landed on, on Skype. So what was that, that process of, of after six years going to a company that is a little bit smaller than, than Thomson Reuters? Like what was, that, what was that transition for you like?
1: Well, Scott tried to hire me a couple of times before um and um and were you know some some uh interesting roles but i didn't want to work for skype and ebay uh it, it just i couldn't feel the connection between skype and ebay ever and um and and i felt that ebay will not be a good parent for what i wanted to do if i were to join skype right and so uh so i i declined and then I learned, uh, you know, at the third time that a set of PE's, private equity firms, were, were gonna take uh, Skype out of eBay. And then I talked to um, folks at uh, Silver Lake and they convinced me um, that uh, that they really want, they were serious about it. They, they want to do something really big with Skype. And um, and it was time for me to, to also look at um, what I want to do for the next, you know, 20 years of my life, professional life. And I realized that um, it would be really good to go back to uh, my roots in telecommunications. And, um, and I, I embraced the offer and, uh, and moved from Singapore at that time to London. Got
0: it. But there, in the, in the end, you were not for 20 years. You were just for one year and six months.
1: <laughs> yeah, my ex-team came to acquire Skype. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Microsoft in 2011. So yes, uh, exactly. that's amazing. That's amazing, and that deal was a big one. How much was it?
1: Uh, over eight billion dollars
0: Wow, wow yeah. so then after this and then going to Avaya where you did corporate strategy, finally entrepreneurship is calling on your door so how how, how was this uh, entrepreneurial buck like all of a sudden kicking in the high gear for you?
1: Uh, um, so think about it the following way right I was uh, first of all in London, then um, we made a decision to open the U.S. headquarters of Skype in Palo Alto, so moved to Palo Alto, and uh, and here I am in the heart of Silicon Valley, and everybody talks about a, a company they want to create, a company they want to fund, or, or or they're going to join the next big startup. So that's that's the atmosphere in Palo Alto, and that's that's a very very compelling um, set of people who are always challenging the status quo and and, and trying to make you. Uh, realize that if you do nothing, you know, you are worthless. So the, um, but I stuck to Skype and uh, and eventually Skype got sold. And then Silver Lake asked me to join Avaya um, to run corporate strategy. And when I joined uh, uh, Avaya, a few months later, my manager got uh, let go. And and then I, I realized that, hey, you know, maybe this is the opportunity um, to to do something on my own. And I had an idea. And um, so I ran the idea by basically the CEO of Avaya, the chairman of Avaya, the manager, and then a few other people. I thought it was a crazy idea. So nobody will support that. But um, but they did. And so I said, hmm, maybe, maybe I got something. Uh, it's worthwhile doing. And that basically uh, was the end of my time at Avaya. Um, you know, it was uh, interesting because some of the people at Avaya invested in my company, and um and perso was born
0: got it got it so so then perso so uh what was what was the um what was the transition from perso to symphony i mean are we talking about like the um kind of like a rebrand because i know that the perso was acquired by symphony so what what exactly happened there
1: it was uh, a interesting time so 11 months after Perso was funded, was funded in September uh, 2012. And so August 2013, uh, we launched the product and it was an immediate hit. So it it really um, struck chord with people who care about confidential communications. And then I started getting a list of acquisition offers. And um, and one of the um, interested parties um, was Goldman Sachs. And uh, Goldman Sachs, wanted to find uh, what they would call a, a neutral, um, in, in neutral translate as a capability that does not read the content of um, the messages that it carries um, up company. And, um, and perzo was that. It was um, not capable of reading uh, the content of its messages that it was carrying back and forth. It was uh, really tight. Uh, it would resist uh, lots of um, attacks um, that hackers would do in order to steal data, etc. And, um, and so it was something that really appealed to the financial networks. And um, the uh, transition was relatively difficult because, A, I could have sold the company and cash out. Or I could sell the company to a consortia, which was Symfony, and then continue the dream. And so uh, it took me a while to come to the turn with Symphony um, from a personal point of view, because, you know, it would have been a life-changing exit for me if I had to take the other offers. So, um, but I decided that it was too early, uh, too, maybe too small. Uh, maybe I should go for the big game. And so I embraced the consortia that eventually became Symfony and acquired Perso. Got
0: it. So then basically there was like a a group of people that put money in that acquired Perso. And then at that point, Symfony was born. Exactly. you're leading it with this group of people. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Got it. And and for this company, were you the uh, solo founder? Yeah. Got it. And just out of curiosity, how was how was the experience of you being a solo founder rather than having someone there that you could kind of like lean on?
1: <laughs> I'm going to come across really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. Let's hear it, David. <laughs> I cannot share power. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Got it. Well, look, that that hey that 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 happens. You know, there there are some people that that can, and some people that that rather just um, you know uh, share it with someone else or. But anyways, the, um, so this is really, really interesting. So how much, how, how much, how much capital, for example, has been raised for symphony
1: to date over 300 million,
0: over 300 million. And, and how, like, was it like a big chunk of that put by the consortium at the beginning, or has it been like the traditional, um, hyper growth startup financing cycle after financing cycle yeah. or, or walk us through that.
1: The latter, the latter. Um, we, uh... I don't know if there is a book on, on best way to raise money or not. Maybe I should write one later.
0: Well, maybe okay. mine. The Art of Startup Fundraising, David.
1: <laughs> exactly. There you go. There you go. Um, but uh, it was uh, a small round to begin with. The first round was $66 million. And, uh, and then from there, consequently, you know, I had between hundred million million in each round. And each time it was an uptick in terms of valuation. So... It was every year um, since the inception of uh, of Symphony that I raised, um, you know, between six hundred million dollars, and um, and it was, I think, the right thing to do um, for a number of reasons. Um, I think the first is um, it it aligns with the valuation growth in a in an incremental way, and um, and the second thing is that it really tests your thesis with uh, sophisticated people who are. Putting you know money at work um, by taking huge amount of risk, trusting you, trusting your plan, trusting the team, and trusting you know pretty much the ecosystem that you are building, and um, and testing yourself each year against you know all these um, uh, smart money people is 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 a very very rewarding test, and uh, and if you graduate uh, successfully with the right terms and the right valuation. Um, then it builds confidence you know it, it you you learn a lot in that process and and from there you progressively uh get better at it and then uh obviously the team that you work with is uh is also a very important part of the equation because they grow with you um and then also they obviously reap the benefits of that growth uh, of the company and so i would say that um you know, we haven't had those big 200, 300, 500 million uh, things coming to the company. Um, and if, if we had, it could have been a very different trajectory, or maybe we, could, we would have screwed up because there's so much money and easy money. But uh, but doing the way we did really gave us a discipline, which I think is really the right thing for any startup to go through.
0: Got it. And, and part of the... Um of the 300 million that you guys raised. I mean, the um, the people that you have involved is, is I mean, we're talking about serious sharks. I mean, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, J.P. Morgan, Deutsche Bank, Google, Bank of America, Mary Lynch, <laughs> Citigroup, I mean, HSBC, Wells Fargo. I mean, I can go on BlackRock. It's I can go on and on. It's unbelievable. But this is like really big time sharks. We're not talking about the... Um, institutional venture capital investors that are more traditional for the earlier or perhaps same early to growth stages so what is what is for the people that are listening the main difference between let's say dealing with the traditional venture capital firm to let's say a, you know people of
1: of this incredible degree pedigree pedigree yeah, yeah. uh so the names are all good. I got twenty eight of them. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I think every every global financial institution is 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 actually investor, obviously uh, a customer of Symphony. And what's interesting is that they first became customer and then they became investor. So it's even better. Got
0: it. The, uh, what, what was the reasoning
1: then to to to
0: get all hmm. of these financial institutions, David? Um,
1: I think I think first of all. You know we are solving a very, very important problem for them for each of them, but collectively most importantly, that is that we are building a new highway infrastructure um, that is going to create a much more secure much more much faster and cheaper and more compliant way for those people to do business with each other there is just no parallel today to what we are building and um, and, and that really appealed uh, to all these global players because they depend so much on the um, the strength, um, the reach, uh, and the power of that highway so that they don't have to worry about how a message is sent across. They just have to worry about how to make the right business decisions. So when they realize the strategic benefit and, and the leverage that this company will have once that highway is built and people are interconnected through that they said you know we couldn't let this opportunity to pass we have to be an owner of that or obviously a part owner and um, and so that that was a, a relatively straightforward uh, decision for them once they got the um, the implications of what will mean in the next 10 years to have this uh, this company uh, wire um, the entire financial network of the world, whether you are in the, you know, B2B side of it or B2C side of it, it's just gonna carry all sorts of loads, not just, you know, less to this trade, but it is gonna be document, it's gonna be uh, securities, it's gonna be trade, it's gonna be uh, fundraising, it's gonna be your personal profile. Everything is gonna go through this network and and the company that that is owning that network um, will have a tremendous value um, and tremendous impact and and so that's I think what what they saw um, and as well as VC because I have also a number of VCs in the company um, and um, and that became basically the investor uh, consortia that we have and and I'm privileged because all of those people I've our best interest in their mind and in their heart because by our success means their success and um, not only from an investment point of view but from a commercial point of view because they can make their own business go faster and cheaper and and serve their customers much better got it
0: and and obviously like you were saying you guys are transforming how people are communicating right so So, when we're thinking about the communication being effective and being secure, when we're thinking about really making money how how, how do you guys think about monetization
1: well um, we we started monetization early on uh, because our system is subscription based uh, it's it's a saAS business model, and it has obviously um, attracted now over four hundred thousand uh, end users but um, what we have been uh, able to see is and unlike uh, what I used to do when I was at Microsoft when I sold enterprise software here I'm selling actually a network and um, and so in the beginning it's tough because well the network effect isn't in place but um, as you progress the size of the network uh, things get much better and much bigger um, and uh, and then from there you see a much better um uptake of the network, and, and you realize that from there, um, you can sell uh, fast, faster, of course. And, uh, and this is now in a phase in which we are in this whirlpool of, uh, of acceleration of the network. And it's fascinating to, to see because I, I can no longer control it. it it's now, um, but our customers are doing it with our software and not we thought what they will do with our software. And, uh, and it's a fascinating thing to watch.
0: And, and you know, one thing that, that I, I was just reminded is, um, and, and just going back to, to this incredible people that you have involved with your business, the other day I was, I was speaking with another guest and he was saying that having people that are strategic at some point on your cap table, obviously as investors, at some point that alignment may become a misalignment or, or things may be misaligned. Do you have any, any concern like that?
1: No, I don't, because I've seen what they've done in the past. Uh, because it's not their first rodeo, right? They've done other consortia. Think about Visa, Mastercard, right? You know these these were these are entirely consortium led initiatives, uh, which eventually went public and, and interests have been aligned over time. And so I don't see a reason why the same won't repeat itself. And um, and exchanges like. NYSE or, or or NASDAQ. And all of those also had, uh, you know, consortia DNAs as part of their heritage. And so this is no different. We are we are in a global network and the global network that we are building eventually achieves a critical mass. And once it achieves a critical mass, then, you know, interests shift from strategic um, value to investment value. And, uh, and And we are not there yet, but we will. Got it. And, and, and for the people
0: that are listening to get an idea of, of, of your business today, how, how big is, is Symfony today?
1: So, about 300 people, uh, global company. We are present all the way from Palo Alto to, to Tokyo via um, yeah, Australia. We have uh, over 400 uh, firms as customers, or 400,000 um, users, or $50 million uh, in annual recurring revenue. And growing uh, about 40% a year.
0: Really cool. And for the space itself, I mean, there's a lot right now happening around the privacy and, and being able to communicate securely. And, and, yep. and I think that you guys are definitely riding a wave that, um, because I find, and, and, and you, you know, perhaps you agree or you disagree with this, but being an entrepreneur and, and, and being successful, I think that lack. It has a big component of of timing in there and, yes. and i think that for you guys timing it seems it seems that you guys are executing this at the right time in history so i wanted to ask you david where do you see this space heading
1: well uh first of all i hope that you are right a bit um you pronostic on timing i think i think you're right too uh, the uh the issues around privacy security um are, are certainly uh on the top of the mind of many people but there's st- there is still a lot of um little knowledge i should say about it and uh, and people don't understand what exactly privacy is what exactly confidentiality is um you know they see encryption and they think it's safe um you know they see i I own my encryption keys. you know they think it's safe and so so there is a lot of myth around it and uh and it, they need to be debunked and um and the truth needs to arise so so that's i think the next phase is as people uh start realizing that security and privacy and confidentiality are important attributes to the digital human um that we are becoming and and for me um, as this matures, as, as people get uh, better in understanding the implications of lack of privacy, well, the total addressable market for Symphony keeps growing, and um, and and something that was focused for capital markets now become a um, a tool for insurance, a tool for government, and etc. And so, I'm very optimistic about that. And, um, and there are some tough decisions that you have to make in order to be successful in this, in this business. And it's super hard to come back to make something that wasn't private, make it private. And you were it's talking business, about, so that,
0: David, yeah. you were talking about myths. So uh, what yeah. is the, the biggest myth that uh,
1: perhaps you can share with, with our listeners? The biggest myth is encryption. <laughs> People think that they see encryption somewhere, it's safe. Um, and it's, it's equivalent to this, you know, let's say you have a house, okay, and you do, right? You protect your house with a key, right? And you have your key, apartment, house, and without that key, you can't break into your house, or you have to break into your house, um, you know, as a thief. So the challenge of today is when you do something at Google or Slack or Microsoft, who owns that key? You think that you own that key, but actually, no, the key is hosted um, in that company that gives you the equivalent of your flat, which is maybe your email service. And so um, if your email gets processed at one point, and it will get processed at one point because you want to read your email, well, somebody has to decrypt that content. And that's where the myth is. So where does the decryption happen is exactly where the risk is. In the today cloud world, the decryption happens in the cloud. Which is done in clear because the servers have to process the content for you to read that email. And uh, and when this happens, your content, your data is at risk. Whether you own the key or wherever the key is, um, you basically uh, have broken the chain of security. That's That's where the myth is. In the world of Symfony, we never ever open any content any process, or process anything in the server. It's entirely done on the client side, in the trust zone. And, um, and therefore, the risk is reduced to the trust zone that you control as an end user versus the and trust zone that Google or, or other cloud providers control, or Facebook. Look at what happened, you know, with Facebook just so many times. Yeah, and so uh, so that's the biggest difference, um, and that is an entirely different computing model. So in computer science, it's it's, it's a it's a client-server versus distributed computing, and and they have two very different ways of working. And and if you have if you have started with client-server, it's super hard to go to distributed computing.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. I mean, super, super interesting. Uh, so, so, David, let me ask you this. I, there's one question that, that I always ask the guests that, that we have on the show. And, I mean, incredible journey. What a ride. I mean, you've, you've been at it. And, and I wanted to ask you here, if knowing what you know now, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before starting a business, what would that be and why?
1: You're going to be lonely. Be careful. What's that? I said, you're going to be lonely. Got it. Got yeah. It. Are you ready for it? Yeah. That, that, will be, that will be what I will ask. Got it.
0: And, and and how do you know if you're ready for it?
1: If you have the right people, family, uh, friends, and, uh, and obviously employees around you, um, you can never be ready for what you don't know because you don't know what's going to happen, right? But if you have the right... Um, people around you, um, and then you have the right confidence that you can deal with any situation, um, you know you're going to be alone because you are the one who's going to make the toughest decisions. You, um, you, know, you, you bear the burden of, uh, of responsibility and accountability at the end, um, and there's only one, and that's you. So um, that's, that's how you cope with that. And um, and you know that that's what you got to do. And then you surround yourself with the people who are smarter and better than you in in their respective domain. And then you make them work with each other well and uh, and iterate until until there are no more challenges. But unfortunately, that's always the case that there are challenges. So you start getting better at identifying challenges and uh, and solving them faster, um, knowing that. Basically, that is uh, one iteration after another, the same story in terms of solving those puzzles. And uh, and then you shift your focus on how I become a better puzzle solver as opposed to how I run a better technology or, or a better business. Um, because at the end, uh, it's what how people work with each other that matters more than what they do. Um, and, uh, and if you do it well, uh, then you can be successful at anything.
0: I love it. I love it. So, David, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi?
1: Um, David at Fantastic. Well, David,
0: it has been a pleasure to have you on the DealMaker show today.
1: Uh, it's been my pleasure. It's great questions, um, deep. And, uh, and I learned a lot even talking to you because I had to think about those things that, um, that I, I, I tend to not talk about uh, for forever. So uh, thank you.
0: Thank you, David.